Welcome to this episode of The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. I'm Graham Gundon. And we're delighted to be with you today. We want to tell you about a couple of things going on that uh, you ought to give attention to. If you've not signed up for the National Conference coming up in January 2022, you ought to do so today. We've got a wonderful lineup of speakers, and it is Southwest Florida in January. So what's not to like about coming down here uh, to be a part of this conference called Militant and Triumphant, the Doctrine of the Church. So the registration's open. It is filling up, so I encourage you to go online and sign up if you have any plans to come. We would love to have you down here with us in January. We also have a special deal going on these really nice uh, Institute of Public Theology mugs, which I understand aren't available uh, anywhere yeah, right if now. you if you join as a fan member through the month of November, either at the sword, the shield, or the ally level, you will get one of these lovely maroon. Is that maroon? Uh, yes, it is. It's Texas A&M maroon. Texas, actually, 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 that's, that's why right. I asked. That's why I asked. And one of these lovely Institute of Public Theology mugs along with that. Right. And uh, today we're delighted to have Megan Bashan with us, who is a uh, writer for the Daily Wire. Uh, you may have known her when she worked for World Magazine, but the last six months she's been with the Daily Wire. And we're delighted to have you with us, Megan. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on The Sword and the Trowel. Oh, well, I'm delighted to be here. I, I've listened to the podcast. I'm a fan of the podcast. So, And I've, I've been able to interview you before, Tom. So this is pretty fun to be able to be here as a guest and be the one in the hot seat. Well, we're delighted that you have uh, <laughs> joined us for this. And I, I think it'd be interesting for some of our folks to know that we, we have a connection through a mutual friend or family friend, Rich Barcellus, who is out in California, has been an old friend of mine for many, many years, he and Nan, and uh, your dad was in his wedding. Is that right? Yes. And actually, I'm remembering now I was actually in the wedding as a junior bridesmaid. I was, I don't remember how old I was, probably around 10. Um, (laughs) But um, yes, so we've known the Barcelluses like my whole life. How about that? Well, that's fun. So Rich, uh, I know you don't ever listen to this, but you ought to listen to this one and then contact uh, Megan and tell her she did a good job. Well, Megan, you wrote an article recently, uh, kind of a long form article for the Daily Wire called Neither Vaccinated Nor Unvaccinated, How Churches Imposing Vaccine Mandates Are Dividing Christians with a Different Gospel. That's a mouthful of a title. And the, yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, it reminded me of a Puritan uh, paperback, but it's a great title and it's a great article. It's an article that really does take a a deeper dive than is typical on these issues. And you engage people with their own words, their own positions. And uh, I find it very, very helpful. So tell us, what was the genesis of this article? Why'd you write it? Um, Well, you know, probably starting back in August, I I first noted a little bit of reporting about churches, at that point, very liberal churches instituting vaccine mandates. Um, We heard about a pastor in Calgary, uh, Canada, I think it was, who was the first person that sort of that I I heard writing an op-ed on this. Um, And it just kind of stuck in the back of my mind going, hmm, I wonder where this goes. Mm. Um, And then I started hearing about, okay, so now I'm hearing Episcopalian churches in the U.S. are doing it. And then I started, you know, just asking questions publicly on social media going, what do we think about this? What are the biblical arguments for and against it? Because I was hearing such strong argument that taking this vaccine is equated with loving your neighbor, that it did seem likely to me at that point that we were going to start seeing um, probably some very mainstream evangelical churches instituting these mandates. So I just kind of kept my ear to the ground and I started getting 
private messages from people. Um, I received messages from people saying, hey, our church is now segregating based on this. And I, mm. that was an email from someone at um, Tim Keller's church in uh, New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian. And they sent me the link to the announcement and said, you, you need to take a look at this. Um, then I received uh, several emails from people with the International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I took a look into that. Um, and then right in my own backyard, uh, this story with Calvary Church in Charlotte, which you know, that one was hard because I, I love Calvary. My sister attends Calvary. I've been there a lot. Um, I, we were at their Christmas program last year. Um, so it was difficult to get these notes from people who work there and who were very concerned about the mandates they were instituting, not for the entire staff, but for uh, particularly young women who work in the children's care ministry. Mm. Um, so there was just a lot of concern out there. I just suddenly started hearing from all these people, and I also had some strong feelings about the subject. And I thought, okay, um, I know this is not my regular beat. I typically cover entertainment, but I went to my editors and just said, can I please look into this? And so here we are. Yeah. And and I was intrigued, all the examples you cited, but the Calvary Church in Charlotte, uh, where the staff member, I guess, who's over their preschool or some form of school uh, issued this memo and said, if you don't get vaccinated by a certain date, then we're going to consider that to be your resignation uh, from working here. And that just, that seemed pretty dramatic to me. Did you get a chance to talk to the people that were affected by that or or the people who issued the policy? So um, I've reached out to several people at Calvary, several staff people, and I did not hear back from these staffers who instituted the policy. Um, I did hear back from People who were affected by the policy who, you know, originally sort of alerted me to it, let me know what was happening with them, but they didn't want to speak on record. Um, Mm. So they just kind of let me know and they shared the memo with me. Um, And as far as I know, at this point, I have not heard back from them. I I don't think there's been any change in the policy. Um, Mm. What I can tell you, it was the children's, uh, it was, it's, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's something like CDC. Yeah, Child Development Center, I think. Child Development. I was going to say it's CDC. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) Uh, The Child Development Center. And so you have a lot of young women working in that department. I mean, typically people who work with children tend to be other women of childbearing age um, who are pregnant, thinking about getting pregnant. And yeah, so this very sort of stark memo came out Mm. saying, if you don't provide proof, we're going to assume that you are resigning. Um, And a lot of these young women didn't want to do that. So they were left in the lurch. They they resigned. Um, At that point, Calvary had to close uh, quite a few classes. And parents who use those classes for child care suddenly did not have that option. And these are typically probably two parent working, two working parent families. Um, And they were told you have two weeks to find other arrangements. And in those cases, they tried to, I, I did hear from some parents who said, we're, we're looking, but daycare options right now, they yeah. have waiting lists that are a mile long. There's a worker shortage. We can't find anywhere to go. So um, it was, it was just kind of a mess all the way around. Mm. You know, we've dealt with that uh, as our elders here at our home church. We've got people that are working in different uh, vocations and for different companies and federal government that are under mandates. And so those deadlines are coming up and, uh, we've talked to several about um, exceptions and taking religious 
exceptions to that and exemptions, and we've tried to help them with that. But it's been very interesting as we've worked through it as elders. We've come to, to a great deal of unity on the question, but we find it, it's strange to see how uh, out of step we are with people that you know, five, ten years ago we'd have locked arms with uh, on so many issues. And it just seems like the whole issue of religious liberty has been thrown out the window. We're going to be releasing an article very soon at Founders on religious liberty that I think is, is going to be a, a helpful article because it's a forgotten doctrine. And the whole yeah. idea of conscience, liberty of conscience, is forgotten as well. Uh, Graham, you did a lot of the heavy lifting on our policy that we came up with. What What are your thoughts on the way this thing is shaking out in these churches that uh, and different ministries that Megan's written about? Yeah, well, one of the issues that you address there, Megan, in your article is um, for, for many leaders, church leaders who are requiring vaccinations, it's a it's an issue of Christian love, of charity towards those um, who are at risk. Um, and, you know, that can be legitimate. You know, we have to think about that. But with the with the vaccination, um, it's the assumption is, is that it's it's safe and effective. Right. And if it's safe mm-hmm. and effective for those who have it, well, they're not at risk from those who do not have <laughs> the vaccine. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's I think there's a lapse in, in logic there. Um, but, you know, there, there have been studies that, and you cite in your article, that, that show that it, it's not 100% safe for everyone. For young men, they're at, they're at risk for heart inflammation, and so they have, to, they have to consider that. Their parents have to consider that. Um, and it may not be loving for them to themselves or to their families to get that vaccination. And so there are, there are many issues uh, that come into play. And, and you know, getting the vaccine, it's, there's nothing sinful about it, for, generally speaking, getting mm-hmm. the vaccine. But for some people, it can be sinful. If they're convinced that it's sinful to take the vaccine, well, then for them, it is a sin to take the vaccine. And so if they, they're convinced that either they, they themselves are, are being put at, a, at risk by taking the vaccine, well, then they shouldn't be, be taking it. And so a lot of the, the, the articles that I've read and, and that people have written against um, religious exemption for, for vaccines, um, don't really deal with the issues issue of Romans 14. You know, mm-hmm. the, whatever is not done in faith is sin. Um, and that, I think that is the issue here. Yeah, yeah. Go well, ahead. and you know, I, I am not a pastor. And so I reached, I'm just a reporter. So I, I reached out to several pastors and one of the pastors I reached out to um, was such a good resource, Kirk Milhone in mm. Maui. He also happens to be a pediatric cardiologist and he's been a medical missionary. He went to um, Liberia in 2013 during the biggest Ebola outbreak in history. So he was a pretty great resource. And yeah. I, I was able to ask him as both a pastor and a physician and a specialist in the heart, um, do you see any argument for, institu- for a church to institute these sort of mandates, whether theologically or scientifically? And he told me, no. There's, there's no reason to do this. Um, he feels that it's, again, he like, like you were just saying, that it is a question of liberty. He sifts the information, and he can make some pretty good arguments for why you might not want to get it. But he also makes some good arguments for people who definitely he feels should. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, he went, there, there's no reason, though, for churches to be instituting these mandates or segregating their congregations. Uh, one of the phrases used in your article that I love is a spiritual social credit system. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I I think that encapsulates pretty well uh, what is going on in some places and could well go on. How do you see this, Megan? I mean, in your reporting, you've looked at churches, you've looked at these different entities and to have a credit system coming into these churches in the name of love. Do you have any 
sense of how that door got opened and, and why guys have fallen so quickly into that pattern of thinking? I mean, to be really honest with you, it feels like um, <laughs> to use that sort of scary word, that sort of big Eva elite mm-hmm. influence, I, I do think that's at play here. Mm. Uh, you have some people who have the ears of the upper echelon of the evangelical world, your David French's, your Russell Moore's, and from the get-go, and, and I covered this extensively in the article, I didn't want to just um, sort of do that thing where I general, you know, you mm-hmm. read that, well, they, they think this, this group thinks this, and they don't, people don't get specific about what right. did they say. Mm-hmm. So I, I spent a good deal of time uh, in the article saying, here is what they've said. And I will tell you, working in a largely secular organization now that is conservative, but it is not um, a faith-based publication, they didn't totally get, why are we spending so much time you know, dissecting mm. all of this. And I went, because trust me, the world that I am in, they will know, and it will be important to have done your homework and show your work. Mm-hmm. So I, I spent a good deal of time essentially showing my work and saying, here are the continual arguments um, that David French, for example, has made in the mm-hmm. Washington Post and other outlets saying, this is the only way to love your neighbor when it comes to the COVID vaccine. And I'm I'm just, you know, par- I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. he directly said the only reason you would not get this vaccine is sort of a selfish sense of liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that that is probably influencing a lot of these churches going, well, we don't want to be seen as selfish. We don't want to be seen as putting people in danger. So we're going to go along with these policies to illustrate to the world that we are loving and, and not selfish. Yeah. Yeah, and that phrase "illustrate to the world" that's huge. <laughs> that is huge. It's it's about this public witness uh, to how nice we are, so that they listen to our message that we're telling them. Um, that they're not going to hear the gospel unless we look like them in all these different ways. Um, you know, you, you hear it often that the world is watching, right? And therefore, right. we have to do what they want us to do, so that they will, so that they'll listen to us. Yeah, and the whole idea of of love. I mean, we're we're just assuming that we know what love is and what love looks like in these situations. And uh, I, I was on a uh, phone call with a bunch of pastors early. I don't know, maybe six months into the COVID crisis and people were trying to decide whether churches should be meeting or not. And we'd settled that pretty early and were already meeting, had been meeting for a while. But in this phone call with these pastors, the question was raised, you know, what are you, what are you doing? How are you handling things? They said, well, said, uh, we're wearing masks. You know, whenever we approach the church, we want to make sure everybody that walks in, walks in with a mask on. We keep our masks on inside because we just want to be loving. We want to be loving to our neighbors. We want to show them that we care about them. We love them. Well, by that point, I was already convinced that masks don't do what we were told they mm-hmm. would do. And uh, so when it was my turn to speak, they said, well, you know, what are you guys doing, you know, Tom? And I said, well, we, we decided we really want to love our neighbors. And so we don't wear masks when we walk into the building. And if people want to wear masks, that's fine. But we're not requiring that because we want to love our neighbors. And and I think that's really an important point to make. Uh, there's a, a brother that's contacted me recently, and he's going to lose his job if he doesn't get vaccinated. And he says, I, you know, I got to take care of my family, and I'm really struggling. You know, do you think it'd be sin if I take the vaccination? I told him, no, I don't think so at all. You know, you can do that in liberty of conscience as to the Lord. Uh, I said, but there's another consideration there, and it's not just your, the welfare of your family, but the welfare of all your neighbors. You know, what mm-hmm. are you doing if you right. if you give in to the mandate? Is that loving to other people? And so I think at least we ought to be willing to have a conversation about that. But David French, Russ Moore, they don't seem to allow for any uh, disagreement on this point of what love looks like in this situation. 
Yeah. Well, and it's particularly, it makes no sense because when you really get into the data, uh, at this point, as far as whether you want to get vaccinated or you don't want to get vaccinated, we do know this. We know that for the Delta variant, you are just as likely or Mm. almost as likely to spread it if you're vaccinated as if you're not vaccinated. So you're Mm. not really protecting anybody who's sitting next to you by being vaccinated. You may have some protection yourself. And that is what really should be sold, that it's I'm protecting myself. Um, But I'm not necessarily protecting the person who's sitting next to me if I have contracted the virus. So it it really makes no sense other than public perception. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's not so much, uh, it's certainly not a slam dunk loving your neighbor. And I would argue that it's not even a good case for loving your neighbor. Uh, but if you want to do it for yourself, that's fine. There's not anything wrong with that if, if you in your own conscience can do so. One of the things that I, I'm interested if you've seen this, Megan, it seems to me, and I, I think I can make the case, that what's going on here in the whole vaccine mandate and approach to it among evangelicals is just a new iteration of what's been going on the last several years amongst evangelicals. You know, my friend Vody Balkum wrote this book, Fault Lines, in which he lays out you know these things are happening you got guys on this side guys on that side and and um, I think he's basically right I think there are probably many more lines than just the big one I mean you've been you've been living in this world as a reporter for several years right. how do you explain that or what do you see what what do you think's going on there beyond just the thought leaders who are being influential any thoughts on Well, I mean, it seems to be a way of sort of signaling that you're not extreme, right? That Mm. you are not, um, it's almost been a way to sort of identify yourself, not politically, but sort of. It's sort of to say, you know, oh, we're conservative, but we're not that conservative. We're not, (laughs) you know, anti-vax conservative, which is sort of silly. You go, how did this become a political issue? Um, it's, It's a medical issue. Right. And it's become a way of sort of signaling to everybody where you sit on that spectrum. Um, and, you know, so for me, I go, gosh, who, who's pushing this as a political issue? Mm-hmm. Is it the people who are going, hey, let's let everybody make their own decisions on this, or the people who have continually hammered on podcasts and essays and social media and op-eds, you must be vaccinated. Um, that I mean, that's really all I can come up with is that it, it's just a way of sort of telling the world here's what I want you to think of me and here's where our church is and we don't want you to associate us with these other kinds of Christians and churches. It's fascinating that uh, it, it seems like this is a political movement, a uh, political movement that is trying to envelop uh, theological issues for its cause and in the process is accusing those of us who I, I want to be acting on theological principle, I'm, I'm trying to do that, but I get accused of acting on political principles exclusively. I mean, even a recent TGC article made that case uh, implicitly, it wasn't yeah. real explicit, about uh, what's happened to the Young Restless Reform Movement and T4G's you know, last year, next year is going to be its last conference. And um, uh, Colin Hansen was the author, and he, he makes a statement in that article, he says, you know, we, we were together for the gospel, but now politics is separating us. And I don't read it that way. Mm. I think what's going on is we are seeing that maybe our theological commitments that we thought we agreed upon, when you drill down below the surface, we have some serious disagreements on about the nature of humanity, the nature of God, the nature of reality, uh, the nature of love. Mm -hmm. And we ought to debate those things. And I think maybe if we could debate them 
five years ago, we would uh, come up pretty clear in some alignments, but in light of practicalities that have been thrust upon us the last few years, we see, no, we really do disagree on what a human being is and uh, what it means to be made in the image of God, what it means to be a sinner, what it means to be redeemed and one with Christ. And so I, I'm viewing this, uh, this latest iteration of the mandates and responses to the mandate as kind of a piece of the same cloth. Yeah, I think that our... Um because we've become such a political society, our political differences are so front and center. Uh, they're the most obvious differences within the Christian community. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though they're so front and center, they're the most obvious, they're really just a symptom of the underlying theological divisions that are there. And so it's easy to kind of be short-sighted and say, oh, this is all politically driven. Oh, the divisions are all political. When no, it's not. It's yeah, not in reality. Yeah. It's theological. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that, too. And, and politics is downstream from culture, which is downstream from belief or theology. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you go back, it's just like, OK, we do have some theological differences. And you address uh, that. I mean, you look, the way you uh, deal with David French's own words, I mean, you take him at his own words and uh, show that, yeah, he, he makes this case that if you don't do this, the only reason is because you've bought into a whiteness ideology or white evangelical ideology. That's crazy and to me. That's really strange that we've come back to that, right? That yeah. even in this issue, it's it, it kind of has come back to sort of this racial debate yeah. that yeah. we're having within the church. And you go, how on earth did these two things get mixed up? Mm-hmm. I know. I, and again, I, I think it's all part of the same thing. I think it's part of yeah. the same way of viewing the world. And uh, it's alarming whenever you start going drilling down on it. I'm thinking, okay, um, are, we, are we practicing the same religion? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I won't... I want, these are brothers. I'm going to call them brothers until I'm forced not to. But uh, syncretism is always afoot. And my fear is that we are being syncretized in ways that we're not fully aware of right now, mm-hmm. which is a huge danger. Yeah. Well, and it, it seems like on the one hand, the issues that should be dispute, we're, we're having a narrowing of the issues that are disputable. It feels like so many things these days cannot be disputable. But at the same time, things we used to be unified on, things like the issue of life, the issue mm-hmm. of biblical sexuality, suddenly is disputable. So it, it's a very disheartening sometimes um, progression, and I'm not sure where it goes from here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, I think he has given us some trajectory to look at and to be fully alarmed about over the last 300 years and where we are now with uh, a loss of just a basic biblical understanding of the world. The fact that God created this world, he is the author of it. We are his creatures in it. We're accountable to him and we don't get to identify ourselves or determine ourselves. We have been determined by God, male and female specifically, but in where we live, how we live, when we live, that's all by God's design. And those things, um, those things get protested today. And, you know, nobody's the boss of me and I can be what I want to be. And, And then evangelicals who know better wind up saying things like, well, you know, God only whispers about sexual sin. 
Yeah, but you know why yeah. that you know why that is though. It's it's the evangelicals are convinced of those same truths right. that God has created everything. He's the one who determines what is truth, what is reality. But um, so many evangelicals want respect and they want a voice among the secular left who denies they they deny those things. They yeah. deny the creator creature distinction. They deny that God controls reality, and so they got to speak in ways in which the secular left can listen to them. And I think that. Uh, some of these evangelical leaders make the same mistake that um, evangelicals on further to the right can make um, with the assumption, and maybe I'm, I'm trying to read it as chari- charitably as I can, the assumption that uh, conservatives, by and large, are believers. They don't need to be evangelized. Now, hmm. those on the left, they're secularists, they need to be evangelized, and so we need to speak in such a way that they will be able to accept what we're saying. But there's very little concern for the secularists or the unbelievers who are on the right that abhor the way yeah, that some of the right. evangelical leaders speak who are further to the left. And so it's like, you know, we need to be concerned about the watching world and what we're doing, that they'd be able to hear our voice and hear the gospel. Uh, but but what about those people on the right who are never going to listen to a word you say because you sound like a leftist? <laughs> That's a great point. That's a good point. Yeah. Megan, you well, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I was talking to somebody um, last night, actually, at a dinner, and they kind of said, you know, this is somebody who moves in that ERLC world, and he was kind of telling me, I, I feel that um, there's there's this understanding that we're in a neutral place still, mm, culturally, mm. particularly in the higher echelons of culture. And I feel that the, the realization has not dawned on some of these people that, no, you are in a negative, hostile space. Mm. You still think you're going to bring this influence into these halls of power, and they're going to use you for their purposes, not the other way around. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's a good point as well. Uh, I feel like in one sense that, that our evangelical thought leaders today, so many of them are like Schleiermacher was in his day, you know, trying to win over the cultured despisers of our religion. And so if we can only make nice with them, if we can only show them that we're not the yahoos that uh, they associate with Christianity, then they'll respect us and we'll be able to have influence with them and win them. So, you know, in the best case scenario, if I were going to give the very best, uh, most charitable judgment, it's maybe an evangelistic impulse Mm -hmm. that leads these guys this way, but it is so wrongheaded. I mean, the gospel is offensive. It's always been offensive. <laughs> There's no way around that. Mm-hmm. Right. No matter how nice you are. Well, Megan, tell us uh, before we leave here, I mean, you, how did you get into journalism? How did you uh, determine that you wanted to be a writer? Gosh, um, you know, it was never really a plan or on purpose. <laughs> um, I, my husband had a job. He was in broadcasting and he, we moved a lot. He was in weather at that time. He also did some news anchoring. But if you know that world, you kind of, every few years, you kind of move up to the Mm. next bigger market. And I was just freelancing because I thought, well, here's something I can do from home. I, if we have to move, it doesn't, you know, disrupt anyone's business. Um, And so I just started freelancing, writing. Mm. And through that, um, I contracted with World for a lot of years and then eventually became, um, a full-time staff member once my kids were in school, but it was still great because I can always work. I've always worked from home. I've never had a real office that I go to. So uh, that was really a huge part of the reason is I love writing, but I was really just looking for something that um, would allow me the flexibility to be able to do some work like that. Kind of do the Proverbs 31 thing where I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm get the kids off to school. I come home for a few hours, do some writing, and then I pick them up and take them where they need to go. And I can write for a few more hours in the evening. But 
I'm always available then um, to my mm-hmm. family. And so it was just a really good fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a Christian journalist who's not working in a faith-based organization now, and, and you have uh, you've published in other places as well, I mean, how do you view your, um, I don't know if mission is the right word, but how do you view your vocation, your calling, your sense of stewardship before God? Well, you know, it's funny because before this, I really had primarily worked with World Magazine, which is um, an explicitly mm-hmm. Christian publication, and it is very thoughtful about uh, what its purpose is and how we pursue um, glorifying God through our work. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of interesting just in the last six months. So I, I'm pretty new to speak about it being in a new organization, but it's been kind of exciting being able to bring some of what I drew from and learned. I learned from so many great colleagues at mm-hmm. World who have been doing this for so long and have thought deeply about Christian journalism and being able to take that into a secular workplace has been, again, still very new, but explaining, hey, listen, this is why these stories are important. Mm. Um, Western civilization, as we know it, has depended on the foundation of Christianity and protecting Christianity to the degree that we can, not as Christian nationalism, but going, okay, we are citizens of this nation and we have certain rights and responsibilities having been blessed to be born in this nation. Um, And part of that is the free press. So how do I participate in doing my best to sort of hold up whatever pillars God wills for this country that were based on biblical principles? So that's something I sort of think about a lot. Um, And I don't know how conscientiously, but, you know, as I look through it, I, I, I do a lot of entertainment reporting, but it's funny because the things I get really passionate about are uh, faith-related stories. I get yeah. really passionate about what's going on in the church, um, what's going on with other believers. So it, it's almost like instinct a little yeah. bit. I just go, I care so much about this. I have to write it. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. And you do a great job. I mean, you're one of my favorite writers. I always want to read whatever you're writing and love the insights that you bring out. And uh, just, man, if, if you're not familiar with Megan Bastian's writings, you need to be. Get on Daily Wire and uh, follow her. You can follow her on Twitter as well. We'll put all of your contact information uh, online and social media. Uh, make that available to the folks that listen to this. But Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate you and your work and your stewardship of the gifts God's given you. So thanks for your time today. Well, it was my honor. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trowel. Don't forget to sign up for the Founders Conference coming up in January. Militant and Triumphant, the Doctrine of the Church. 